At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, Executive Director of the Commonwealth Policy Center. We are honored to have uh, Professor Victor Davis Hansen join us to talk about the topic of American citizenship. Dr. Hansen is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and Professor Emeritus of Classics at Cal State University in Fresno. His focus is on classics and military history. He's the author of over two dozen books. Most recently, the book that caught my attention, I'm currently reading, is called The Dying Citizen. Dr. Hansen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Dr. Hansen, you wrote the book, uh, The Dying Citizen, and you're also doing an online course at Hillsdale College called American Citizenship and Its Decline. By the way, it's a fantastic course. I've taken almost all of the set, and I think I'm a pretty well-informed person somewhat familiar with some of the things you're teaching there, but there are some concepts that I've not been taught in undergrad or in graduate school and things I've never really considered. So tell us, why is the idea of citizenship not being taught in our schools as you are teaching at Hillsdale and have written in your book, The Dying Citizen? Well, we're in a cycle right now of kind of revolutionary equality that happens a lot in societies in which any hierarchy, any privilege, any distinction is seen as somehow unfair or consequence of bias or hatred or racism or sexism, nativism, something like that, xenophobia. And the problem that the left has, and it's mostly from the left almost entirely, is that citizenship is a distinction. It means that you're something more than just living in the United States. You're not a resident. And while we protect, we extend the residents if they're legal constitutional rights, and even apparently if they're illegal, citizens have supposedly have other responsibilities to vote, to hold office if they wish, participate in political campaigns, and to adjudicate their public officials. And they have rights, serve in the military, go back and forth across the borders at will, etc. Although I think you could argue that almost all of the distinctions between a resident and a citizen, that was one of the themes of the book, have been eroded except holding office. And I'm not sure that's even there. But I guess the, the short answer is there's a distinction between a citizen and there's a qualification to be a citizen and there's responsibilities to be a citizen. And there are forces in the country that feel that that discriminates against people who are not citizens. And they feel that people should just be able to come at will and stay in the United States. And, and the Constitution and its adherence would work on automatic pilot. That's never been the case in history. You, in your book, uh, The Dying Citizen, you contrast American citizenship with the citizenship in other nations. And perhaps the biggest distinction that you make uh, was that American citizens come from every place in the world, but an American cannot go to another country and, for example, become a Frenchman or a German or an Englishman. So we revolve around something else here in this nation. Can you expand on that? Most other countries 
require they're they're not so much Western Europe, although they are different. They have more distinctions and restrictions on citizenship. But most countries in the world are, I guess I call them blood and soil countries, that if you want to be a Japanese citizen, you have to look like you're Japanese. Or if you want to be a Mexican citizen or a Kenyan citizen or a Chinese citizen, you have to share the general appearance of the majority of the population. And when people object, they say, well, I know people who became Japanese citizens that were Americans. It doesn't mean that they're going to be equal citizens. They're not going to be able to, to rise high in the corporate world or in politics or serve in office. And even in Western Europe, there's a much more, there's much greater emphasis on birth, status, who your parents were, and that you resemble the majority culture. And when they don't, when they're trying to evolve beyond that and follow the American paradigm, it's France, Germany, they don't, they don't do very well. They have, they have enormous, not that we do so great, but they have even more problems. So the American idea was that Americanism that's innate in the Declaration and the Constitution is an idea. And it has to, it's very difficult to do that because if you follow what the founders wrote, the natural evolution would be there were going to be millions of people who wanted that freedom and the protection of that freedom who did not look anything like the founders. And they would come on the promise that the founders' words had invited them. And that was sort of the story of the United States. But it required that you give up your primary allegiance to your race, your tribe, your gender, your sexual identity, and accept an American identity first. And then that would be peripheral or secondary, your innate identification. Dr. Hansen, I think one of the ironies today is that the mainstream media and the prevailing view at many of our colleges and universities is that America is a terribly racist nation with institutionalized racism even today, when in fact we've been a melting pot where we welcome in about a million immigrants a year legally. People are trying to get into this country any which way they can, legally, illegally as well. Why aren't the mainstream outlets, universities, news outlets, um, looking at how other nations treat citizens? It'd be difficult for your eye, and you mentioned this in your book, to go to Mexico um, and try to sneak in there and set up shop, you know, buy a home or to vote in an election or whatever. Whether it's Mexico or other nations, for that matter, they treat citizenship seriously. Mexico has in their constitution a clause uh, that the natural integrity of, of being Mexico shall not be altered by immigration. And we know that China... You can't go and buy farmland in China for U.S. citizens, much less next to a U.S. military base. But all of these asymmetries, the left says, and they have a point there, they're based on the unique idea of the United States, that it's not going to be like other countries. But where they fail is they don't see that as exceptional. In other words, they're saying, we're going we're to be different and we're going to be much more welcoming people and we're not going to have the restrictions and responsibilities that other countries do. But then when you come back and say, well, first of all, you have to be aware of that. You have to teach people how unique that is. Second of all, you, you can't insult the intelligence of 175 other nations. They have some of these uh, protocols for a reason. If you want to be unique and hear off on them as America has done, then we have to really have to do a lot of hard work of civic education and say, you know what, we're going to be different than Mexico. We're not going to calibrate race. And they don't do that. 
and to the degree they talk about race, it's, I, I don't believe anymore that the left believes the United States is a racist country. When Michelle Obama says that it's fundamentally a, a mean country or that it's, she's worried about racism when she steps out, I don't believe that she believes that. Nobody who has three huge homes and such power and influence or LeBron James, I don't believe that, but they believe that. I do believe that a lot of people feel that to say that in this climate, whether it's in the context of academia, the corporate world, foundations or K-12 or universities, professional sports, they feel it has career dividends, that that's the popular orthodoxy. And so they say these things either for career advancement or for psychological you know, calmness. They, they think, well, I don't want to rock the boat. I want to adhere. It's almost like being a party member in other societies. But I don't take them seriously because their own behavior belies their uh, ideology. When I look at what Barack Obama does, or I look at what Oprah does, or I look what Beyonce does, or I look what anybody does. It doesn't seem to me that they operate on the premise that people won't like them, or they won't be successful, or their only audience will be people who look like them. So, I mean, more, more so-called white people voted in 2008 for Barack Obama than they did for a white male, John Kerry. And right there, I mean... It would be inexplicable if this was a racist society. That's a good point. I'd like to go back to a term you brought up a few minutes ago, how other nations come about their citizenship and use the term blood and soil. Mexico could be said of having that. It's in their constitution, as you pointed out. You look at the Third Reich in the 20s and 30s, they had an ethnic identity, a racial identity. Italy had that as well. Um, so you see specifically, and I'll, appears to me to be racist, uh, racist policies that are as a matter of public policy that's out there. And we're opposite of that in the United States. We don't look to race, and yet we see race being made an issue, our skin color or our ethnicity, when in fact, I would say, disagree with me if you will, but I'd say we're the least racist nation on the face of the earth as far as a matter of public policy and equality before the law. You know, the philosopher Aristotle says something that I thought was very fundamental. I always have in the politics. He says that of Athenian democracy, which is radically equal, he said once a citizen feels that they have political quality, then it's a natural evolutionary but mistaken idea that they should be equal in every aspect of their lives. So when you have radical democracies, and we do have one, we're supposed to be a constitutional republic, but our culture is radically democratic. A lot of people feel that once they have a quality politics, they can vote, they can hold office as they please, then it's logical in such an environment that they should be equal in every other aspect, income, personal wealth, careers. And they don't factor into that paradigm that some people are healthier than others. Some people are luckier than others. Some people will inherit other people. Some people just like to enjoy life. They don't want to work as hard. Some people are workaholics. Some people get sick. So when they have this inequality, which is natural, they demand an equality of result and on the end, on the backside. And so to justify that, they don't say this individual doesn't have as much money because he had multiple sclerosis or that he, he didn't inherit as much or, you know, he had a drinking problem. Any of that, it's, they, they, they revert back to race or gender and they say, 
it was because I don't have what that person has because I was black or I was brown or I'm a woman or my sexual identity was not the mainstream. And we know empirically that's wrong because when you look at the United States, the largest number of people who are poor are so-called whites. And when you look at income, annual income by ethnic affiliations, so-called whites are about 17. I mean, Arab Americans, Greek Americans, especially Punjabi Americans. Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, they all uh, do better in terms of family income than does the person who identifies on the census generically as, as white. And so that would be impossible in a racist society. But that's, it's this idea that you have to be equal in every aspect of your, of your existence. And when you're not, you get very angry about that and you want to find some culprit for what's unnatural. And there's no society in the world where people are equal except equally impoverished, something like Mao's China or, or Stalin's Russia, where at least the non-elite are pretty much equally poor. That's a good point. Uh, so you make the case in your book that we are losing the idea of citizenship in America. You say that tribalism, identity politics, open borders, and the attack in the middle class have all contributed to this loss. And I think most Americans understand the crisis with the open border and illegal immigration. But I'm wondering if enough Americans really understand the problem um, with losing the idea of citizenship. Do we understand what it means? Or, or Dr. Hansen, are we taking the general average American taking the idea of citizenship for granted? Yeah, I think so. I, I think people are getting upset at the border, but they don't understand that you can't have a society, a nation without a border, because it's simply beyond the means an ability of a society to inculcate unique language, custom traditions all over the world. And in time memorial, every city-state in Greece, every country in the ancient Mediterranean had borders, and they understood that. And, but Americans, they've sort of become carefree about it. They don't understand that when you meet 50 million people in the United States, legal and otherwise, who were not born in the United States, then you have to have something in common with them. You can, they can't be strangers in a strange land. So you have to say to them, what is the Declaration of Independence? What's July 4th? What was the Battle of Okinawa? They don't have any frame of reference because we haven't had civic education, nor do we, citizens. And so I don't think they are aware that what we're doing and where we're going historically does not work. It ends up somewhere at best, like an unstable Brazil or India, where you have a multiracial democracy that's very unsteady and often violent, or it ends up at worst something like Rwanda or former Yugoslavia, where each tribe will privilege their own ethnic fides to protect themselves. I mean, the thing that is so striking is when somebody says, I'm going to be I'm Hispanic, or I'm Black, or I'm Asian, or I'm gay, or I'm female, and I'm part of a mosaic opposed to the white male person. Well, once you start doing that, there are going to be very, mostly poor people who are white males, and they're going to say, you know what, everybody is going tribal, and I have no affiliation, and yet I'm poor, and I have no access. I'm not part of the bicoastal elite, so I'm going to start identifying with that. And once it's kind of like nuclear proliferation. Once the country goes nuclear, it's neighborhood for nothing other than protection. So that's what happens with tribalism. And it, it's just 
the fact of history. So if they, if they, meaning the American people, keep identifying by their primary superficial appearance, then they shouldn't be surprised that everybody does, and that's not sustainable. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. It's clear that the news media isn't always fair. In fact, there's lots of far-left bias and political gamesmanship. No surprise there. So if you're looking for a perspective that's grounded in the truth of Scripture and our nation's founding principles, then get plugged into CPC's resources. Sign up for our e-newsletter at CommonwealthPolicyCenter.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Commonwealth Policy Center. And we're on Twitter at cpc for kentucky I just uh, to that point, I heard a news story yesterday where uh, the guest was essentially use the term older white males. We hear that term frequently, but it's profiling. It was not used in a favorable term, but uh, we can see where uh, external characteristics are used to create suspicion or to even bring about angst or anger towards that. Yeah. You can really see what's happened when that happens, when the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, or the Chairman of Joint Chief, Mark Milley, before Congress in July of 2021, state that they're on the scent of what they call white rage, and they want to ferret out white supremacy, and they did not present any data at that Senate and House testimony that there was a problem, that is, that the the group that they were focusing on was any more prone to be racially chauvinistic than Latinos or Black. But nevertheless, they made that charge. And since then, we've had these institutional workshops, I guess you'd call them indoctrination in the military. Then what happens is the military announces last week they've only met 40% of their recruitment targets. And when you start to look at the data that is not in the news accounts, but is in the original data that the news accounts are based on, you see who it is. It's white males uh, from conservative families who have multi-generational participation in the armed services. That is, their grandparents were in World War II, their parents were in Vietnam, they have been in the Gulf War, or their children have been, you know, they've been in Syria or Libya or wherever, and they're not going to do it anymore because they feel that they're being demonized. And part of it is they don't feel that we're winning abroad and we've been humiliated in Afghanistan. Partly they don't want to die in a war overseas and be libeled. And it's, it's very dangerous, you see, because when Millie and Austin did that, they were attacking a group that if you use their own rubrics of proportional representation by race, had died at about double their numbers in the general population in Iraq and Afghanistan. About 75% of all combat deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan were white male, mostly white rural male. So why in the world would you go out and demonize that group and suggest that they were culpable of being prone to white supremacy and white rage when you didn't present any evidence? You were just virtue signaling. And yet so that's what happens when you do things like that. And what we need, and it's, it's going to affect all of our security if, if the army can't find these families that traditionally send their daughters and sons into the combat units. And that's what's happened. So you're joining the program from California. There's a saying that says, as California goes, so goes the nation. In your book, you share that uh, 50% of the nation's homeless are in California. of those dependent on public assistance live in California, and 20% of Californians live below the poverty line. In fact, you say that the middle class is vanishing. 
Much of this has to do with far left political policies. Um, is there any, and this, by the way, some of these policies are being adopted by other states. Is there anything that can be done to stop this from happening in other states? You're, you're losing not just your economy, but you're losing basic freedoms. Uh, businesses are leaving California because local prosecutors are refusing to prosecute uh, shoplifting, low-level property crime. Uh, businesses are leaving. Uh, people are leaving. I think it was two congressional seats that you lost uh, since that last census. Um, what can be done to stop this from happening to other states? Well, I mean, it's very germane because Gavin Newsom, ironically, is touring the country and then doing it with uh, ads suggesting California is the model when everybody knows the problem with California is the things that you listed. But basically, you pay the highest income or gas or sales tax. And even property tax, the rates are low, but the assessments are so high. And you get very little. You get the, some of the worst infrastructure, schools, crime. And so that paradigm that it's not just that you get bad services or you have a bad quality of life and you're still paying high taxes. It's because you're paying high taxes and you're creating a vast number of unaccountable elected officials and bureaucrats. And they're making laws and regulations that perpetuate crime or they perpetuate uh, the lack of good roads or they perpetuate bad schools. They have so much unchecked power. So I guess the answer is every state constantly has to look at their budget and, and should be, I think the model as we see from Florida and Texas is zero, prop, uh, zero income tax and then uh, try to restrain the size of government because what's happened in California can happen anywhere. And unfortunately, we had so many natural advantages that Texas didn't have or Utah didn't have or Nevada, beautiful coastline, national parks. We have the fifth largest reserves of oil and gas in the United States. We had the richest timber other than Oregon and Washington. And we didn't utilize them or we destroyed those industries. So it's, a, it's an arrogance of power. And I think part of it was caused by globalized wealth in Silicon Valley, especially $6 trillion of market capitalization. A lot of people didn't have enormous influence that were not accountable. We had half of all illegal aliens. So we had a huge underclass that needed enormous amounts of public services. And as you say, we've lost $30 billion in capital and about 10 million people last 35 years have left. And they tend to be the upper middle class entrepreneur or small business person. And so we're kind of a feudal society of two classes. Is there anything that can be done besides politically to change what's happened in California? You basically essentially have a one party system uh, in California. You've had it for decades. But, uh, and, and so in Kentucky, uh, we were a conservative state. We still have a two party system, although. It's uh, swung uh, largely to the Republican side of things. Um, but are there other things besides politics that can be done to help us to have a better understanding of citizenship, to help us have a better understanding of what the United States is about, to understand what it means to live under the rule of law, um, the, the principles of the Declaration of Independence? And I'm, I'm getting to the university. I'm wondering what can be, because it seems to be the largest critic of the United States. Yes. Yeah, I think I think conservatives have played by the Marcus of Queensbury rules. 
and they just accepted this asymmetry. The left does certain things that the, the right says, I wouldn't do that. That's beneath me. But they need to go back and start to rethink everything. I think it's been helpful that the Re Republican Party, I'm not saying one part, I'm not particularly, I'm an independent, but the Republican Party is refashing in itself as a populist middle-class party. And you can see that that has been successful because people of different races and ethnic backgrounds are starting to, to join the conservative movement. They no longer see it's a caricature golf course type person that's in it. And that's been helpful. The second thing that I think is uh, conservatives or traditionalists, they tend to be silent or quiet or they detach. So if you meet somebody and he looks at the current state of popular culture in California and the United States in general, they say, well, I never watched the, the Super Bowl at halftime. I haven't been to a Hollywood movie. I, I don't go to the theater. I don't watch the NBA. I don't watch late night comedy. I don't do this. I don't do that. And they've dropped out culturally from the mainstream and they've seeded that. And I think the result is they've got to get reengaged. They've got to be active. They've got to vote and they've got to look at the universities and think of things that are unorthodox. So if you have a Harvard or a Yale or a Stanford or Princeton and they have 20, 30, 60 billion dollars and they're not nonpartisan and they're indoctrinating, you have to say to them, you're going to pay taxes on that endowment. Sorry, you're not a nonprofit. We can do that. We started to do it in 2018, and we can continue and up that. They should not be, if they had to pay taxes, and I think they would be very different, if the government got out of the student loan business, so that if you went to Princeton and you got a student loan and you couldn't pay it back, then Princeton has the moral hazard. I think Princeton would say to itself, we better have some courses that equip somebody to be a good citizen and get a good job because we can't afford these defaults. I'm not, I'm just picking on them, but I think it would be much more effective even in state universities. We'll get the government out of the student loan tax endowments. I think uh, you got to get rid of tenure. I think the faculty had to be accountable and they had five-year contracts with specificity as far as what they was obligated, publication, teaching about that would help. I think the schools of education, people should have the option to have a, an academic degree. If you want to go teach high school in Kentucky, you could have a master one year in English or math, but you don't, or you could have a credential. And I think if you gave people the option, they would opt out of the school of education. And that's where most of, to be frank, most of the indoctrination is occurring in the university, in the schools of education that teach our, our K through 12 teachers. So there's a lot of things we can do, but the theme of it is that conservatives for too long they say, you know what, I don't boycott corporations. I'm not going to be like Coca-Cola or Delta Airlines. But you see that when people finally say, if you let Disney do whatever they want, they're only going to be more emboldened. So we're not, we're going to stop it. And Disney's revenues are down about 20%. And so I think they have to be a lot more activists. And I think the left has to start to feel that there are going to be people who are going to be symmetrical. And so I, I think that's the key, that people, A, have to be awake and vote and participate in politics, but more importantly, they have to look at these institutions and hold them accountable. Very good. Uh, Dr. Hansen, we are out of time. We appreciate you joining us. I couldn't encourage our viewers and listeners more than to read your book, The Dying Citizen, and then also to take the course at Hillsdale College, American Citizenship, Its Decline. Dr. Hansen, thank you so much. God bless you. Keep up the good work.